Welcome to the latest episode of Calling All Stations, the podcast that brings you up to date with all the latest transport news. And with me is Mark Walker of Cogitamas. So what's been in the news this week, Mark? Good uh, day to you, Christian. And today we are going to consider developments in relation to the controversial issue of smart motorways in England and the recent announcement from the UK government on that programme and policy. We'll also be reviewing the state of rail reform in Great Britain in the light of an appearance at the House of Commons Transport Committee this week by UK Transport Secretary Mark Harper. Uh, we'll also be uh, exploring issues around the backlash which is taking place and is visible in some places against the new smarter forms of personal urban mobility. And then finally, uh, in your thought from the departure lounge, you're going to reflect on the status of young drivers in the UK. Oh, thank you, Mark. Yes, smart motorways. We discussed this in uh, episode three of uh, Calling All Stations. And I must confess, I was I was basically arguing that, you know, despite the controversy over them, they're not an entirely bad idea because they enable greater capacity on the roads at, you know, without the expense of building a whole new lane or, or widening them generally. Uh, and they seemed quite a, a practical solution to congestion. But the more that I read about it, I think it's been so badly managed in terms of the safety requirements, notably having sufficient shelters where broken down drivers are likely to end up. Also to have the right technology to stop the traffic uh, straight away. I think this is probably uh, the right thing to do, but it's not, of course, a reversal of all the existing smart motorways. And indeed, there's a couple of schemes, according to the government statement, where they're going to continue with them because they've actually spent most of the money and done most of the work, but they're just not going to institute new schemes. Now, in a way, one could suggest that this is actually a bit of a secret cut because uh, there's quite some bits of uh, the... Uh, roads program which uh they're sort of secretly held back i mean that's something that we'll discuss when we uh discuss uh, uh mark harper's statement to uh, the uh, discussions with the house of commons transport committee because actually he let slip that because of the massive overspending on hs2 and other parts of the transport network they're actually holding back on some of their road spending but anyway so one could see it as a cut uh, but uh, also just from why I've partly changed my mind. I've discussed it with various friends. I don't actually drive on motorways that much. But a friend of mine who, who lives uh, in Cheshire uses a section of the, I think, the M6, where uh, often uh, he, he drives along and, uh, you know, the smart motorway kind of function. It, it, it's part of the smart motorway, so there's no hard shoulder. And he says, for example, he was following a truck the other day and suddenly this truck kind of pulls out uh, into the next lane because there is a broken down car. And he's kind of facing then this broken down car. And he has to pull out into the, the next lane uh, because he hasn't been able to see it before. Um, and fortunately, there was nobody uh, in the lane uh, that he pulled into. But 
you know, he said it could easily have led to an accident. He said that's not the first time this sort of thing has happened. So um, I think it's probably good riddance to the uh, smart motorway program, but it does leave a couple of problems. One is what do you do with the existing one? And secondly, you know, how do you expand uh, the motorway network uh, where you really need to in terms of the uh, level of congestion and you need kind of extra capacity? And, you know, as they keep on reiterating, there is no money. I suppose this uh, we can look back at, at this in some ways and see it as a bit of a wheeze to get more capacity out of the existing motorway network uh, wasn't it christian to um to go from three lanes to four in some circumstances or two lanes to, to three without the cost and the planning uh, uh, procedures associated with uh, motorway widening which is generally opposed by neighbors yes that's right uh, and uh, it, it didn't need planning permission because it was already uh, road but uh, you know, it, it's uh, one of those things that you think on the face of it sounds like a good idea. But then when you start investigating it and there have been deaths, although there, there, there is controversy over the figures here, that the government says that the rate of accidents is not higher on these sections of motorways than on other sections, uh, whereas uh, the opponents of this say, uh, that there has been a, a high number of deaths. And it's one of those things of, you know, how do you count the deaths? Do you count it per traffic unit or per mile or whatever? You know, it's it's one of those things where the different statistics will uh, give you uh, different answers. But I, I think where they've skimped is precisely that, you know, they haven't introduced technology. Again, to go back to my, my friend, he said that, you know, they, they they don't close off the motorway, the lane, quickly enough. They haven't got the technology to get these red crosses up, which is you know indicating the, line, the lane is closed, uh, quickly enough. And there's not enough people monitoring this. So, uh, you know, it's, it's the half-baked nature. Now, this doesn't surprise us, does it, uh, Mark, that uh, something is introduced uh, by government in a rather half-baked way? Well, in some ways, I think it's, it's two aspects of kind of technological hubris, isn't it? Because, first of all, there's the idea that the technology on the roads themselves can be super responsive and effectively infallible to close off the lanes in the event of a a hazard appearing and secondly the hubris is the idea that cars and cars and other vehicles never break down anymore um, and, and clearly they still do uh, because uh, you know for a whole variety of uh, of reasons and um, the vehicle fleet uh, is not all uh, bang up to date but there can be any number of reasons and even with a modern electric vehicle you can run out of juice can't you and find yourself uh, uh, stranded Absolutely. I, I do think cars do break down less, definitely. I mean, I mean, you know, in the old days, you used to see broken down cars all the time and people with their bonnets open, stuff steaming out of them. And that, that does happen much less, but they still do. And I think actually a lot of it is tyre bursts or, uh, as you say, running out of juice or running out of uh, petrol are very common reasons why people break down. So, um, I mean, just to, yeah, just to, to end on this, I think... Uh, you know, this is again a, a kind of just a Ill, something that was ill thought out, not not sufficiently kind of invested in, um, and uh, they're going to have to ha find other ways of trying to expand the capacity on the motorways.
the UK Transport Secretary, Mark Harper, MP, appeared at the House of Commons Transport Committee on Wednesday of this week in a session that lasted for some two and a half hours, covering the full range of his and his department's responsibilities. But uh, you and I were particularly interested in what he had to say about rail reform in Great Britain and the associated legislation. Absolutely. 51 pages of evidence, which uh, you and I both uh, uh, ploughed through. And uh, yes, reform was the most interesting part of it. But just a very quick thing about HS2, and I could go on about HS2 every every day, but there was a long section on HS2, and he was the, the question, he was pretty hostile on it. And just a couple of remarkable things came up, which is that you know, he really it showed that he's really not on top of the detail. He, he really didn't quite know what was happening, um, and uh, it was all very vague. The answers, and he did have the the permanent secretary Bernard Kelly next to him, and uh, she wasn't enormously helpful to his cause either, because he was asked specifically what percentage of phase one was complete wasn't he? And he didn't know the answer to that. <laughs> Which was quite extraordinary, Mark, that you know, here we have the biggest kind of scheme, really, uh, possibly we've had in the country. I mean, I don't think anything else that would absorb 50 or 100 billion, whatever it was going to cost. Um, you know, the Channel Tunnel only came as about 10 or 12. So, uh, you know, it's the biggest ever scheme. And, you know, it's a Department for Transport scheme, entirely funded by uh, taxpayers. And the guy supposedly in charge of it uh, is asked, well, where are we, uh, Mr. Harper? You know, how far is it phase one being built? And, you know, where, where are we? And not only was he not able to say, give a percentage, but he didn't even know what the metric should be. You know, well, I suppose he said, well, I suppose you could say how many miles have been completed or whatever. <laughs> and I mean, it was just completely hopeless. Because having written a book about Crosswell, as you know, I mean, they were very tight on, on the percentage finished. And there were all sorts of metrics that you can use. Even I mean, though it went horribly wrong in the end. Even but, if uh, they did go horribly wrong, but at least they were keeping kind of abreast of it in some kind of way. And there's metrics such as, you know, how much money are you spending out of the budget? You know, that's a good question. And that's one metric. You know, uh, how much of you know, rail has been laid or sleepers have been laid or tunnels have been dug. I mean, all these, you know, you should have some great big chart kind of up there that, that kind of gives you percentages on all this thing. Basic project management, you know, what is Mark Thurston, the, the CEO, doing about this? And what are they talking about ministers? Now, just to add, we could talk about HS2, but just to add a point, I had a call from a very good uh, source and friend of mine who's long looked at... Uh, British government and failures of British governments. Um, and he has investigated the, the website of HS2 in some detail with the expectation that he'd be able to find out what is going on. And when you go to the website, you find that virtually everything is redacted. So there's plenty of, of particularly the board minutes. And they say, well, uh, we're thankful to the Department for Transport for uh, its comments on so-and-so redacted. And its comments on so and so redacted, <laughs> and uh, we're uh, you know uh, at the point of uh, starting with so and so redacted. You know, there's absolutely nothing on the website to explain what is going on, what decisions have been made, 
and uh, what what progress there is and and you know th this is something that uh you know is spending and i'm told not only is it spending a uh, uh, hundred and twenty million pounds a week but also inflation is increasing the cost of this at around around a hundred million pounds a month so uh, the thing is you know and completely out of control and Clearly, Mr. Harper is not on top of it. But let's go on to, to rail reform. Let's talk about the existing railway. Yes, the existing and railway. And absolutely. Of that. Yeah. And uh, again, um, you know, the, the, this has a, a big history. The Great British Railways idea came uh, under the Boris Johnson government and uh, out of the Williams Shapps report, which was originally the Williams report and became the Williams Shapps report into uh railway reform and the key to it they always say is is bringing uh rail and uh the the, the operations and the infrastructure together the kind of integrating uh the, the the two different parts of the railways which as you know mark just a little kind of advertisement for my own work here i've always opposed that concept ever since i've been writing about the railways for the last uh 25 yeah, so uh, it's always a, a, a ridiculous thing to separate out, uh, you know, two parts of a, a, a things that can't operate without being together. Anyway, so that's the key point. But it's clearly been quite a lot of discussion about this since uh, we had uh, Johnson go, the trust government briefly in there, and now uh, the Sunak government and different secretaries of the state in each case. Um, and it's fair to say that Harper was very sceptical about plans for Great British Railways, um, and he was quite hesitant to endorse them. They you know, did wonder whether it was necessary, but went ahead with this. There was the George Bradshaw lecture, which we have discussed previously uh, uh, in February, which set out the, the government's plans and it essentially endorsed uh, the uh, Great British Railway concept, but gave... Uh, a much bigger role to the private sector than I think had been envisaged under the, the Johnson government. So where are we at with this? Well, he was pressed rather strongly on, you know, is there going to be legislation? And, you know, reading between the lines, Mark, uh, and I don't know what you think, but I thought that he was basically saying there isn't going to be legislation. Would you not agree? He certainly didn't seem very confident that it would be inserted into the programme to be announced in the King's speech for the final legislative year of this parliament. I, I would have expected to hear a pretty ringing endorsement of that approach if we were going to see it happen. Absolutely. And I think he he kind of demurred greatly and said, well, it's not up to me. And then they kind of pressed him and said, well, there's lots of transport masses that need some urgent attention and so on. And he responded by saying, well, you could do quite a lot in terms of uh, the reform of the railways without having to uh, resort to legislation. And he said, well, we can, uh, you know, we can do things around fares. We can do things uh, around, you know, changing the, the the route structure and the kind of organisation. We can sort of set up uh, what what's going to be called the rail business regional re regional business units uh, and so on. But it's very clear that the thing they can't do, and he made this clear, is that you can't have GBR actually taking over the contracts 
to uh, operate the, the, the passenger operating contracts that's right they're vested with the department for transport and the idea in the white paper is that those powers would transfer to the new great british railways organization and that does require primary legislation um, but that seems to be the point on which they're hanging the the whole delay to the reform program because if you think about it um, the Secretary of State and others have said, well, aspects of the reform programme could be introduced without legislation. So my question is, well, where are they then? <laughs> Why have we seen no significant reforms introduced in the almost two years since the white paper was published, if they are so easy to introduce without primary legislation? While I've, I've written about this uh, in Rail Magazine, and, and we have mentioned on the podcast before that, there's a, a staggering 235 full-time equivalents working for Great Britain, the Great British Railways transition team. And I somewhat suspect they're rather uh, frustrated that uh, nothing much is happening. Um, and we've had very minor reforms around, if you remember, fares with some kind of special offers being made uh, which really didn't kind of address the the, the huge issue uh, of uh, the fact that the fares system is a complete mess. I mean, you know, again, this same friend, the friend of mine who I discussed smart motorways, also showed me his tickets from from Manchester, and and even though he'd booked for an agent and he doesn't know anything about split ticketing, found that he he his agency had sent him two different tickets splitting between Manchester, one, uh, one half going to Stafford and then the rest going to, to, to London to save him money with this split ticket, even though uh, he knew nothing about it. And in fact, the split ticket was such that he was supposed to move seat halfway through his journey because the booking was for right. one, one bit <laughs> and then for another seat on the second I mean, the whole thing is completely bonkers. And they could start to address things like the crazy uh, fare system and the, the sort of duplication of work that goes on and the micromanagement by uh, the Department for Transport. And I mean, all these things could be uh, addressed, uh, as you suggested, they set their mind to it. And yet there's complete stasis. And, and indeed, you know, as you know, and he said this uh, to this committee, you know, the performance on the railways in certain parts of the country, notably Transpennine Express, but also other places, is just completely uh, unacceptable and, and, and hopeless. I mean, I, I'm trying to take a train next uh, uh, week, you know, in a, literally in a week's time, uh, to go to Stoke-on-Trent, not a very far away place from Houston, and you can't actually book it yet, Mark. You can't actually book the seat a week in advance because the the the, the train bookings have not been released at this stage. I mean, presumably because you can't be sure which sure trains are train actually going to be running. Absolutely, which, and, and, and that's so, some, somewhat counter to the idea of the advance purchase ticket, isn't it? Where you supposedly can book ahead with confidence and and get the bargains. But well, it's also very reason. confusing for people because. I know the system. I know I could just be, I buy an off-peak return at Euston and hop on whatever train I want. But lots of people, and, and including my, 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 my kids, for example, who are just used to using advanced tickets and they barely understand the fact that the railways are actually you know, available at any time to, to anyone who wants to hop on a train. 
um, and they can't really stop you, even if the train is very crowded. So, you know, there's again, that's another issue that they could deal with straight away. So despite the intense uh, questioning from members of the Transport Committee of all parties, it should be said, on where is the, uh, inc including the governing party, on where is the legislative programme, we, we got very little uh, clarity. Um, and as somebody who personally worked on the 1993 legislation, which led to most of the, of the present uh, Great Britain rail industry structure, uh, I recall that th that bill, which was hugely uh, significant, hugely controversial, and, and passed by a government with only a tiny majority in the House of Commons, uh, achieved its complete parliamentary uh, process in just nine months between February and November 1993. So you do have to ask yourself the question, I think it's a fair question, uh, is the government really behind this legislative programme or are they in, in fact still uh, anguishing over, over whether to, to proceed? I suspect that's the case because as I understand it, this is not a very long bill. Uh, it, it could be, a, a and, and it is, as I understand, largely written, and it, it, it apparently doesn't consist of very many clauses. Uh, and a lot of it is about enabling stuff, because as you well know, uh, because you've studied this and you lived through it, um, the original uh, railways bill never mentioned the words rail track. It mentioned uh, an infrastructure manager, didn't it? That's right. So it, it creates a, a general ex uh, existence of something called, I think, uh, a, an infrastructure network operator or something right. of, that, of that kind, which then can be uh, licensed uh, to provide infrastructure services. And uh, yeah, without without becoming completely nerdy on the on the detail of these uh, these uh, bills, it is possible to achieve quite a lot. Uh, you know, in, in, in general terms, which allows the government then to have some discretion uh, in how it subsequently, uh, in, on a practical level, implements the reform programme. I think one danger here is that they're going to rush something through um, which uh, won't be particularly satisfactory. Um, and also it might uh, stymie anything that uh, the the Labour Party might want to do, and and uh, you know I think that uh, the Labour Party should be on the case here, kind of kind of looking very carefully at, at what is going on and putting a lot of pressure on the government to uh, come clean with with what its plans are, because uh, you know th there's a risk that we get uh, rushed legislation and uh, without a proper scrutiny, and we end up with. I mean, because let's face it, Mark, you know, the railways are in a state of crisis. They have been really ever since uh, COVID um, and uh, they do need this reform, but they need the right type of reform. And uh, I don't think a rushed legislation would deliver it. Christian, you're a great advocate of transport on two wheels, whether it's uh, pedal powered or sometimes assisted in some way by a battery. But uh, there has been a bit of a backlash of late, hasn't there, to some of the innovative two-wheel transport uh, technology that's been introduced into some of our cities. 
Uh, absolutely. Um, uh, fortunately, uh, Mark, I'm still on a on a, a bicycle that doesn't have any battery assistance, and I, I have two bicycles, and I enjoy pedaling around, and it's a good form of exercise. But um, what's grown up recently is uh, these bikes and Lime and and uh, Human Forest and Uber and stuff, um, which uh, are dockless. So these are different from the uh, Transport for London scheme, where you have to uh, unhitch a bike from a dock um, and you have to leave it back in another dock somewhere of which there's lots in central London. But that limits the range because you can't go into boroughs uh, where there are no docking stations um, uh, and or you can't go to places where uh, all the docking stations are full or whatever. So it, it does limit how you can use the bike. So now what has grown up is entirely private sector stuff, which is that they just plonk some bikes uh, in suitable places, usually on the pavement, uh, and then people can hire them and leave them, usually within some uh, controlled zone, actually. You're, you're, you're sort of not, you can't take them out of certain zones that are, are specified um, uh, digitally. And uh, they're generally, they're, well, they're all now electric powered. There, there was a spate of these without being electric powered and too many of them, I don't know, ended up in the canals or whatever and, and people uh, just left them lying around anywhere. Or I don't know, they, they Mobike and Ono, uh, various other ones like that, they all kind of gave up um, and they now replaced by these electric assisted bikes which are not cheap actually i did uh, hire one once and it was kind of five or six pounds for a relatively short journey but nevertheless they they are quite popular now the problem is that they're getting left randomly i mean I and mean, they do just people either run out of juice on them or just you know get to the end of their journey and park them or just you know, right across pavements and particularly in Westminster, the local now Labour Control Council has been getting particularly angry about this um, and is talking of uh, you know, trying to restrict them or whatever. But there is no legislation about this. The, the councils have absolutely no uh, right to register the companies or license them or whatever. It's a complete uh, and utter free for all. Um, and again, it's something that might go into a transport bill if there if there were one. That was the promise of the transport uh, bill that it yeah. would include these these matters. And this also applies to scooters. Now the scooters are different because there are uh, legitimate hire schemes which are regulated and uh, just in a few places, and they're uh, con completely uh, uh, controlled and, and licensed. You could only take the scooters from one place to another. But now, interestingly enough, in Paris, where there was no such uh, regulation, there's actually been a referendum, which has just voted. That they only had a 14% turnout, but nevertheless, there was a total referendum uh, in Paris, and 80% of people voted to ban these hire schemes, these scooter hire schemes. Now, that doesn't stop people using their scooters individually. But in the UK, these individual scooters currently are illegal. So right. you don't find any of these lying around anywhere. But it's uh, electric bikes. And now I can tell you, let you into a little secret here, which is it is quite easy to uh, move these electric bikes without registering with uh, the company. 
um, and uh, it's a there's a method by which you can take them over. I've been taught this method. I've tried, but it hasn't worked. I've just tried as an experiment. Of course, I wasn't going to go Not that you were mind. engaging in any criminal enterprise. Absolutely. I no. certainly wouldn't. But I was... Just journalistic just, curiosity. Absolutely. To see uh, whether it grew. And, and, and it didn't. But then I found some uh, random young man near me who then showed me how to do it and uh, it's not difficult so that's one of the reasons why these bikes have been left in all sorts of odd places you can tell if somebody's uh, actually using illegal because it goes click 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 all the time because the, the thing is trying to engage and, and it doesn't engage so if somebody kind of rides past you and it's all going click 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 you know that um, they haven't paid for it uh, and I think that's part of the problem is that these things are very easy to move without uh, actually registering and I think it's probably those that get dumped in all sorts of places but you know Mark I think it would be a great shame if these were totally kind of rejected as a result of this or, or legislated against because you know this is another form of mobility it's getting people on their bikes it might even get a few people out of their cars I think by and large it's it's kind of something positive and you know, we just need people to to use these uh, these things properly, not to chuck them in canals and not to leave them lying about, kind of toppled over on the pavement. They they actually topple over in the wind as well, which is a, a great problem because when it was quite windy a week or so ago, I could see that all these were lying on their side, and uh, and that kind of you know creates even more of a hazard. So uh, you know, I'm sure that there, there's ways around this, and probably. Uh, some uh, legislation and some council rules about them uh, would help, but um, we're stuck without this legislation. Here's Christian's final thought from the departure lounge. Uh, well, Mark, you know, I got struck by an article uh, in the Sunday Times uh, uh, today, which uh, said that Drivers under 25 for the first year after they pass their test might be restricted from having their young friends in the car. They obviously be able to drive their parents around and their older friends above 25. But uh, this, there might be a rule that they're not allowed to uh, take uh, their friends uh, anywhere. Um, uh, and this is because there is a high rate of accidents amongst uh, young uh, people. And, you know, there are sometimes these, I mean, not often, but sometimes these tragedies where three or four young people have been buzzing around very fast and, and they've been going, uh, you know, round corners, skidding off and, and getting killed. But, you know, I think young people suffer from being mollycoddled too much. I mean, compared to what I could do at the age of, you know, 12 or 13, running around uh, kind of bomb sites and kind of playing on the streets and doing all sorts of things. And now young people are so restricted. And indeed, there's a lot of times when you think, well, if you're a young woman going home, you'd rather feel safer if some uh, young man who is a friend of yours or he did another young girl took you home in a car rather than left you walking because they're not allowed to give you a lift. So, you know, these sort of things uh, are kind of sprung on people. Uh, and and, and the, this is a lobbying of uh, a minister who's going to discuss this uh, next week. But I would steer clear of bringing in legislation on something that restricts uh, what young people can do yet more because I think you know they have enough imposed on them. and I think one of those pointed out that actually the most dangerous uh, group uh, on the roads are over 85s 
um, who have you know the highest rate of accidents um, and uh, they're certainly allowed to have their 85 year old mates with them so you know they should be able to have their young mates with them Calling All Stations with Christian Walmart is a Cogitamus Limited production. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating with whichever platform you use. Do follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at AllStationsPod.